Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Lisa. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. With over 30 years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing, Lisa has developed the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Give yourself the gift of a better night's rest this holiday. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash Chang and use promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G at checkout. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash Chang, promo code Chang. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. We're back with the diary series, something we launched this podcast with. In fact, I didn't even plan on really doing a podcast. Just wanted to do the pre-opening diaries, and I think this is how Bill Simmons suckered me into doing podcasts at large. And what we're going to get into is the post-opening diaries for Major Domo, our restaurant we opened up last year in Los Angeles. And as a whole, what we're going to try to do with this podcast, because it's been all over the place. I'm still learning the ropes as to how to interview, how not to talk over a guest, how to ask meaningful questions. But while we figure that out, I think what we're going to try to still do more of is talk about the restaurants that we operate, whether they're Major Domo or Momofuku in New York and some of the new restaurants that we're opening up. Because the one thing I've heard from a lot of people in the profession And not in the profession, if you just run a business or trying to figure out management in general, there's a lot of lessons that people seem to have learned. So I'm encouraged by the fact that the feedback on just the business end of how we operate stuff and think about stuff has been meaningful. So it's something we're going to continue to do, whether it's part of every podcast or we make it a repetitive thing. So plan on hearing more of that. And we're just going to try to do more useful stuff about travel, about where to eat, and things that happen in my life, and then obviously the interviews. But the original goal of this podcast was simply just to talk about Major Domo and the openings and the ideas and failures and trials, tribulations. But we've had a great run. We've had a wonderful, wonderful launch to LA. Been thankful for all the people and all the support, but mostly I'm thankful for the staff. And this Post-opening diaries is really about going into some of the individuals, and I wish I could have spoken to everyone, but that's why we're going to continue to do this because there's so many people at that restaurant that have been instrumental in helping us get to this point today. So you'll continue to hear these names and be introduced to new roles and figures as we continue this pod. So kitchens are always divided into many groups and subcategories, but the two main groups besides the customer is the front of the house, labeled as FOH as acronym, and back of the house, labeled BOH as acronym. This podcast was going to deal with the FOH, the front of the house. And while we have a lot of leaders in the front of the house, unfortunately for time, we're going to get everyone else eventually. We're going to talk with Christine LaRucu, the general manager, and Richard Hargrave, the beverage director, sommelier of Major Domo. The second pod, we will talk to Jude Parasickles, the executive chef, and Mark Johnson, the chef de cuisine. The reality is, I fucking hate titles. What I love about like the NBA right now is sort of positionless, and that's where I feel like a really good team should be, is positionless. Everyone's doing their job, their roles, but the actual titles, I don't really care, and oftentimes I don't know. And I mean that, and... We have FOH, we have back of the house, and when we are working and operating our best, it's when 
everyone is helping out. Our end goal is to make people happy, to have people feel they got value and got something delicious. How we got there ultimately doesn't matter. And oftentimes restaurants and other organizations, not just in restaurants, are caught in just doing their job and the repetition that comes with that job. That's not something that we want. And one of the reasons these four individuals are so good is that they don't just do their jobs. They're constantly trying to figure out how to do something better, understanding the other roles of other positions as well. So right now to start off, we're going to talk to our front of the house manager, our GM, Christine LaRucu. She has been instrumental in getting us to a good place. Right off the bat, uh, when we wanted to do Major Domo about three years ago, I'd say two years in, she came to New York. We brought her over from Moza Pizzeria. And she had a, a bunch of experience in LA. She went to USC, but this was going to be her role as GM. And, you know, roles are always a little bit different with us, but essentially not just front of the house. We wanted her take on everything that we're doing. She's sort of the arbiter of taste and of talent and how we are going to present ourselves to the customer as a whole. And that's just how I've always seen what a GM is. They're essentially the boss of not just the kitchen, of everything. I, I always look at it that way. And Christine has been such a delight to work with. She's a boss in every sense of the word. And again, very thankful to have her help. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Christine Laruku of Major Domo. So we are at Major Domo. We are in the daytime mid-service and there's a lot of noise, so if it sounds like we're in a fucking restaurant, it's because we are in a restaurant. And I'm sitting with Christine Laracou. I did it. Oh, good job. I have had a very hard time pronouncing your last name. You've been practicing. It's been very difficult. I even called you Christine Laracou once. I liked that. Yeah, you liked that yeah, one. it's fun. So you are our general manager, and you've been with us well before the opening alumnus of the Moza group, proud graduate of USC, born and raised in Houston, Texas. Born in Miami. Miami. Raised, raised in, in Houston. Two great cities. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've been incredibly lucky and happy that you've been part of the team because I think you're one of the best I've ever worked with. That's just true. And I'm, I'm saying this and we're airing this and I, if anyone tries to poach her, I'm going to come after you. Her resume is never going to be on ZipRecruiter.com. I promise you that. I'd like um, to never use my resume yeah, again, regardless. Yeah, th- we're going to put, uh, <laughs> a, uh, we're going to block your resume. I don't know how legal that's going to be, but um, let's just go back in time. When you took the job, what were you thinking? Having never worked for us before. I had no idea what to think. Um, I flew out, I think it was 4th of July, because I was flying out to New York. I'd never actually really been to New York before. And I was going to be there for two days and meet with you and meet with the rest of the team. And I had only heard about, you know, the company. And I was like, wow, this would be a really great opportunity. Um, But once I got to New York and I met you... And that was its own weird encounter. What was so weird about that? (laughs) I don't know. I walked in the room. We started talking just like immediately. And then you're like, here, look at these drawings. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) It was like design for the restaurant. I was like, I don't even think I have this job yet. (laughs) Um, 
but after meeting with you and with the rest of the corporate team, I was like, wow, these people, they get it. Like they're making the system work. They're not, you know, working the system, just slacking off. I was like, this is the kind of people I want to be working with. So after I went to New York and I was going out there, just, I had been at Moza for a while. This really great opportunity came up. I thought that was kind of it at first. And then it became more so working for this company and being a part of that team. And, you know, it was funny before we opened up and got to know each other, we hunkered down at the line and we spoke about it in the pre-opening diaries. And I don't know if words could ever describe what the hell we did there with you, me, Jude, Mark, who else? David. Yeah, David showed up after a little bit. Richard showed up. We did a series of dinners at three houses and all we did was recipe test and we just, what the hell happened? We should have had a camera following us. Yeah. It was a windowless room we were in and a kitchen. And yeah, the first couple of weeks was just you, Jude, Mark, and myself. And you guys would be in the kitchen and I would be doing the dishes because I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. I was like, I'll, I'll help. Yeah. You were helping. You were prepping. Yeah. I helped prep a little bit until they got some temporary sous chef and then he didn't work out. But yeah, we, it was mainly recipe testing and it took three months for us to get like three items, but it was also a lot of conversations and ideation, kind of talking about the more removed things from actually what we're going to make, what we're going to do and talking about what kind of restaurant we want to be. We still had a different name for the restaurant at that time. Yeah. Our conversations were all over the place. Were you, were you a little bit shocked at how unstructured it was? Yeah. The first couple of days was hard because it was my chefs and you, and you were first talking about like the menu and what we can put. And I've worked in restaurants, but I'm not, I'm not a chef and I wanted to participate so badly. <laughs> And I think that it was important and, and it's something I wish we could do all the time, time permitting, was the food was sort of incidental and whatever the fuck we were doing, I think was just nice. Mm. But the most important thing is we were getting to know each other, feeling each other out, getting to know the ins and outs, likes, dislikes. And through that sort of bonding, we were able to create an identity of what we hoped the restaurant to be. We went to camp together. Yeah, we, we were summer to, camp. It was summer camp. It was great. Yeah, we really got to know each other. We would spend a lot of time in front of a whiteboard. Oh, yeah. Forcing each other to destroy each other's ideas. Yeah, lots of erasing on that whiteboard. A lot of erasing and a lot of whatever you say is not going to hurt someone's feelings. So be as fucking brutal as possible. Mm-hmm. Luckily, this group, we are all very comfortable poking at each other. So. Yes, I agree with you. I was thrilled by the fact that we could have without sounding too much of a douchebag about it, like a, a intellectual conversation. And it was a lot of thinking, more thinking than doing, which ultimately caused me to be greatly concerned as to the progress of what the fuck we were actually going to do. Yeah, that's we scary. really didn't know. Although many, many menu items were created, we didn't really know, but we sort of knew. Well, even just the other day, we're looking at the menu and saying, what changes are we do for the next month or two? And half of the ideas we threw out were things we thought of when we were at the line for our first version of a menu that some made it on there, but some didn't. So we have like a, literally 75 items that we never got to actually do or finish recipe testing. I think an important thing that we learned there that I've now used a lot at the other restaurants to explain was take the idea all the way. 
Don't edit in your head what you think it's going to be or because you don't want to waste time, don't like try to perfect the idea in your head. And we really forced ourselves to fuck it up each and every iteration possible. And I thought that was really cool. I got to eat a lot of stuffed peppers and a lot of hotuk while I was at the line. Because one item we would test for, for weeks and try out different versions. And even I would throw out ideas like, hey, try it this way. And June Mark would go and try it that way. And maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. But that was fun. What I thought was really important was we documented Yes. And that was at first, I was like, well, we don't really know what we're doing yet. But now I'm grateful that I have like a thousand Excel sheets on my desktop and from that it's, time. It's as cliche as it sounds, it's to trust the process. That journey to getting that would be the most important thing, particularly for the relationship that we've created, right? To, to create that sense of trust. So without going too fucking down that road, what are your responsibilities as general manager? It's obviously different at every fucking restaurant. But here, what do you do? When people see you on the floor, they're like, well, I wonder what she's doing. Not much, really. Well, we all uh, know that. So let's, let's yeah. impress the people uh, with Excel. a lie. Well, it all started with hiring. Pretty much everyone that works in the front house staff. It's constantly hiring. Having my team of managers help me train the staff. Kind of quality insurance. I'm constantly dealing with guests, both for reservation requests, feedback, special events that they want to have, people reaching out for various items. Sometimes right. you're a reservationist because Sometimes, someone shows yesterday, up. Yesterday, I was a reservationist. Um, I'm the handyman. I built all of our heaters outside during the winter. You are incredibly gifted <laughs> at building shit. I like to do things with my hands. During the winter when we were opening and we realized our heaters weren't going to be installed until summertime. She built them all. I built them all. And I, I was like, guys, I need to go across to the warehouse and build some heaters. And I would just disappear for and an not hour. just like one. She built like 16, 16 yeah, there, fucking I think there were 18 of them. <laughs> yeah. Every 18. single one by myself. But I was like, oh man, I can't wait to just be alone and build this heater. And your job is incredibly tough because you're the last line of defense for all the fucking problems. So in a restaurant, shit rolls uphill. <laughs> Here it does. Yeah. A, a general manager, at least... Maybe it's just me, but everything falls back on me. So it's like I'm always behind everyone trying to catch the pieces. But what I have to try to do is make the pieces strong enough that they're not going to break for me to then be catching them. So it's you have to play every role. I remember pretty early on after we opened up, I was getting, I think, frustrated because you were working too much. I feel that way now. <laughs> Still feel that way now. Yeah. I didn't know how to tell you, but I saw it in your eyes, right? Like, I don't want to be doing all this work, but if I delegate it to someone else, they're going to fuck it up. So I'm just going to do it. That's always been a hard thing for me to do. I've learned. I've delegated uh, quite a bit to my other managers, but I'm not the kind of person that my mind is just at ease. If I'm like, oh, okay, it's fine. I'll just pass this off, pass that off. Like, I, I, I never stop working. And we also had some other problems. And I'm problem. These were growth. They were, these were good problems between New York corporate office and what we were trying to do here. Yeah. What yeah. happened there? Well, I mean, I've always worked in restaurants where I'm on a different coast than the corporate office. But in creating this restaurant from scratch in a new city, I mean, this is something that you, you guys have had in the works for a while, but there is no corporate office out here. We're not in a hotel where there's you know, support team there. 
And we really wanted to do something new specific for LA. So it has to be different from the New York restaurants. And I think without everyone else being present for all those conversations we had, all the ideas that we had, there was just a, a lack of understanding with what we were really trying to accomplish in the long term. As an operator, it's really easy to think about the short term, but even still, we're like trying to get ahead. What is going to be best for us in a year from now, in two years from now? How are we really going to set ourselves up? And sometimes those don't sound like logical reasons or financially sound reasons. And I have to be the one to go to my bosses and be like, hey, actually, we're not going to open up for this. And we're not going <laughs> to try to make more money tonight. And I'm going to hire more staff and train them. And it's things that part of me is like, no, don't do that. But another part of me understands why it's important to do that. And I, and I remember the, the frustration that you were not, I feel comfortable voicing as to like, listen, like, give me the opportunity to own this. And it was a really important learning lesson for us in New York and everyone there, because everyone cares so much that they were helicopter parenting. And they were not preventing you from making decisions and, and owning these decisions. And I could sense a growing source of frustration. And I think we tried to squash a lot of it. I think we did that for you. I think we did. The first, it was right around opening. And after the first week, it was kind of like, hey, everyone, you need to let us do this. And if we fail, then we fail. But then you can come and help us. But you've got to let us figure out how to do it on our own or we're never going to learn how to do it. And when I saw that and I saw that fierce independent streak, I was like, oh, this is going to work. Because you were like, basically you said, fuck you guys. I got I this. I didn't say that. You said that. I said that. <laughs> I definitely said that. I, I just scary, I was just, just like channeling your rage. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, you I, weren't going to say, fuck, I knew you what you were feeling. I just... You know, I was like, uh, if you put like a voice command on like a dog, if they could speak, that's all that I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I don't always voice those things, but I show it on my face. Um, yeah, at first it was scary to think like, oh shit, I have to do all this. I, like I have to man the ship. But then after trying to get things done and just having to go through hoops and too many cooks in the kitchen, it was like, okay, really? Now you're preventing me from doing my job. So. And I think you've had probably one of the more difficult jobs I could imagine for someone that's not just the first time with the restaurant group, but the sort of the expectations that we have this restaurant, the size of this restaurant, because it's a massive thing and the overwhelming requests that we've gotten. I think you've done an amazing job. And again, I say we, we really lucked out in getting you and I hope that you never work for anyone else because we've signed you to a 100-year contract. We'll see. <laughs> and I've been giving you and Jude a lot of freedom trying so hard to put my two cents in where I can. And I think one of the things that we could go deeper into was when we, op we were originally open up for five days, you wanted to open up a sixth day for a lot of reasons. And I said, no, <laughs> which is again, I think weird for most people to be like, no, we should open up as many days as possible. I think it was, I didn't want to as Christine, but I wanted to as an operator of a restaurant knowing that all right, well, we do have to make money. I do have to hire people because I know eventually we'll be open six, seven lunch. And I needed to start preparing for that and hiring for that. But then once you hire people, you have to give them shifts. So what did you think of my idea of being only open four days a week, Monday through Thursday? I emailed everyone in New York. I was like, guys, Dave has this idea. I don't know that I can get behind it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was a real, was, real, real thing that I was trying to push. That would have been some good work-life balance. 
I don't know about four days. But all I asked was you guys have certain things in place to test as to the culture, right? And I think one of the things that we were doing all the way back at the line was making sure that we have the right culture to make sure that we're giving the freedoms for people to add or subtract as they see fit, to make decisions on their own as they see fit. But as long as we make good things, we discuss those. And if we fuck up, we discuss those. We just hope that we make more right decisions than wrong because we were busy as fuck right off the bat. And I think we handled it incredibly well considering... And I, I knew that opening the sixth day is a big thing because your expansion, it's expansion, right? Within your own restaurant and you lose culture. You lose the, some of the key players that keep the things running. And I was worried and I started to do just basically, and I know this can be annoying as fuck to you. I was giving you certain tasks to test. And those tests were minutia of minutia, mm. just the test. Oh, I know. <laughs> I was aware. I was like, okay, this is exactly what he's doing. One thing you said in the beginning, even when we were back at the line that has stuck with me is you can always add on, you can't take away. And that has kind of been one of my operating mantras since the get-go. So adding on that six day, sure, like we want to do that, but you can't take that away once you do it. So we were pushing. I think we were getting some pressure from New York because hey, I've got this budget to meet. And technically, if you look at my job description, if I'm not meeting certain numbers, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I hope you guys um, don't fire me. Uh, and I, for the record, <laughs> wasn't looking at it at all. Yeah, well. I was just like, we got to get it right. Yeah. And then if you do it right, the score will take care of itself, right? Exactly. It'll work out, but we were all kind of just thinking like, oh, okay, well, we have to open, but you can't keep adding on if it's not going to be right. And I've seen it in restaurants before where, you know, new person starts training, new person starts training, new person, and you get a telephone game, and all of a yeah. sudden, what you wanted and what you think is happening is no longer happening because you now have a generation, multiple generations removed from the core group. And I was mostly concerned of simply like how are we making sure the values that we care about are being instilled in everyone that comes in, mm -hmm. because the number one thing that I've seen, and you've seen this in every restaurant, it happens all the time, and you have to fight it is to just continue to plug in the holes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a whole different skill set to um, plan for a restaurant. It's a whole different skill set and team to open a restaurant. It's a whole different thing to open a restaurant for six months. And if you're lucky enough to last six months, to get to the next six months is a whole different kind of like plan. Mm -hmm. And I often say, if you're lucky enough to get to that point, it's like playing a game with the lead. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that we weren't just we had the same mindset, I think, of pre-opening. I was like, this isn't going to work, guys. And just because we're bringing people in, because we're expanding, I was like, how are we making sure that they care about the same things that we care about? I didn't know. And that's what I was harping on. And I know I was annoying as hell. But um, I let you guys do the six day. And I was, again, adamant that we don't do six days. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of myself as a business owner, what a shitty business owner I am because I'm trying really hard not to fucking increase, <laughs> increase right. revenues because to me, it's a marathon. Yeah. And, I, and of course, I want to be open more days, but we're, I didn't feel we were ready yet. But I knew that if I make that decision for you, I'm going to fuck ruin our relationship. So I just let you guys decide on it. All I asked were, when you are comfortable with certain thresholds, which were checklists, quite frankly, mm -hmm. right? Can you actively know, do you actively know every station 
not just their mise en place list, both front of the house, back of the house, from opening to close, is there another list that you can grade their intuition on as to how are they going to be better at this job? That might not make any sense over this audio, but I know it makes sense to you. And then you guys worked at it and you got me something and I knew that it was a work in progress. And I was like, if you guys feel this is adequate, let's go. And you guys pulled it off. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by 23andMe. Now through December 25th, the 23andMe DNA kits are on sale. So give the gift of genetic discovery. With 23andMe's Ancestry Composition Report, you can explore where your DNA is from out of 150 plus regions worldwide. You can also learn about the role your genes play in your well-being and lifestyle. For instance, studies have shown that almost all elite power athletes have a specific genetic variant in a gene related to muscle composition. 23andMe's Ancestry Composition Report can tell you whether or not you have that version of the gene too. It can also tell you about the genetics behind the other senses, like cilantro taste aversion, ability to match musical pitch, and mosquito bite frequency. One of the things I discovered about my genetic composition through 23andMe is I'm 0.1% Ashkenazi Jew. I was very excited to learn that. Now through December 25th, get 30% off any 23andMe kit. Order your DNA kit at 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. That's 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. Again, that's 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. And now back to the show. We continue to operate and now like we open up for seven days. And this probably could be like a business school case study. You had the office in New York that was the finance team and God bless them. We aren't successful without them, but they have a singular goal of making sure things are on budget. So without me knowing their conversations to you, they're like, Hey, we need the seventh day for X, Y, and Z of projections, blah, blah, blah. You're missing that. (laughs) You have operations saying all these other things to you. So you have a ton of pressure from finance and operations because to do a seventh day, you need a lot of different things moving from HR to manual, you name it. And my biggest concern was, are we ready for that growth? Are you reevaluating everything? Have you thought through everything? Have you used rational paranoia for all possible outcomes? And I was really concerned. It was like opening up for the sixth day, but like times 10. Mm. Because we were not stretched thin, but it felt like it. And after nine months, everyone's sort of ragged. And the car was going very fast. <laughs> Faster. And you guys, Faster. and I was like, am I crazy? Why are you guys making it more difficult? You, you, and I'm pointing at you, you were like, we need to do more covers. It feels so good. It's so hard as, especially front of house manager or operator to be in the restaurant and you just see tables that are open and you're like, man, I know we can fill them. We have, we're lucky to have the demand and I've been very adamant about growing it slowly. And when I was away for a couple of weeks and I saw some of the numbers, I was like, whoa, like, I know we can fucking go that fast. And I know we did some numbers that were like insane, but I also knew things were falling off the wagon a little yeah. bit. When you are going that fast, you cannot always make sure not just quality, what we were losing was culture. Mm. And I think morale was slipping a bit because we were just burning through so much fucking food. The cooks couldn't keep up. And while you make the decision to make the finance happy, you start to fucking sacrifice morale. 
And it had all these other things. And, and then I looked at the schedule for Sundays and I was like, wait, you want to put a lot of our weaker players, currently weaker, we believe that they're going to be really strong down the road. I was like, why? We want to challenge convention as to how everything's been done. And we all agree that a lot of how we operate restaurants is dumb. It's dumb because it hasn't been thought through enough, in my opinion, or challenged. It's like, okay, so if we open up Sundays, I would like to hear some more crazy ideas from you. Like, why are we not experimenting more? Let's use this as an opportunity to train. And without going so into all of these really intense conversations that we had, um, <laughs> it was a lot That's of fucking stressful. shit. <laughs> and honestly, it's sort of much ado about nothing, but it was an important point for us because it caused everyone, I think, to reassess the situation. And... Without explaining it too much, I felt that we were on a good point of firefighting. And I hate to use this analogy. Fire prevention, right? And we were getting to the point where we weren't fire preventing because we were moving so fast and things were getting out of our control. We were just firefighting, mm -hmm. like physically. And I wanted us to get back to… We need to be the bear. Exactly. Smokey the bear. Smokey the bear. And there's something cool about like being in the weeds and doing it all. But like you can't fix a car that's fucking moving that fast. Yeah. yeah and it's hard because then it's like you're saying with the corporate team and I have all these different departments I'm dealing with. It's okay. Well, what do you need to get to this point? It's like, okay, well, to get to that point, I need to hire more people. But therein also lies the problem because hiring those people is going to require more time for me to spend with them and train. I can't just hire people and, okay, great, we're staffed and we're ready to go. It's not that easy. And there's very few of us doing all those things to get to that point where we can be fully functional, everything in place, culture in check. Like, it's not just, okay, here's a quick solution. Here's a quick solution. All right, I'll put up more ads or, okay, here's the sheet, implement this. It's like, no, it's a lot of things that have to go into it. And what was the ultimate decision that you and Jude made? We pushed it back like two or three weeks. We said, we had already done a schedule with seven days because we had been talking about it even with the staff for so long. And they don't hear, obviously, like the phone calls you and Jude and I would have. They knew seven days was coming. We had put out a schedule with seven days. And that week, I think like Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday you, we spoke. Thursday, I was like, guys, we can't do this. And I waited all day to finally send that email to New York. I was like, hey, guys, so we were talking. We're going to wait. Use the next two weekends for training, both one-on-one. -on -one, be closed on a Sunday and bring the whole staff in. We're going to provide lunch for them. We're going to go out and buy pies. Uh, we're going to do some retraining from the very beginning, some kind of teamwork activities. It was actually really fun to see the back of house mingle with the front of house. Um, and to have a living, breathing thing. I was so happy to see you guys do that. And I was so happy that you basically told the office, oh, guess what? We're going to spend money to not open up. That's one of the scariest parts of my job is like making decisions. And I know, okay, this person is going to think this way. This person's going to think this way. You're going to think this way. I'm one of those people that I, I try to be in people's heads and imagine what they're thinking. You don't want to be in my fucking head. It's, it's hard. Crazy. I've tried. Someone last night asked me, they're like, do you know, like, Dave? Like, do you know what he, how he's thinking? And like, do you just get it when he walks in? I was like, the second I think I do, I question it all. Or like, we did an event last week. And as soon as you said you were coming over, I turned to them. I was like, guys, okay, Dave's on his way. He's going to 
have something to say about this. He's going to have something to say about this. Just be prepared. And, and, and that, I knew, and it, yeah, and, you and, had and, valid and points. And I was very clear as to like, listen, <laughs> and this is sort of on the seventh day thing too, right? And I'm trying to be better at communicating this because in the past, I probably would just been a, a fucking incredibly negative person. And I'm trying really hard to say, this is great. This is fine. But where can we do things better? Yeah. And without going into the details about that, that's all I was saying. And I tried to reiterate the fact that including the seventh day conversations, as difficult as these conversations are, I just want everyone to understand that this is incredibly positive. Usually when people are having these conversations, it's because they have no fucking choice. We are in an incredibly luxurious position. Having been on the other side where you have no options, you have to do whatever it takes for survival. Let's make the most of our opportunity to make the most thoughtful, most empathetic kind of fucking decision. And we did. And that's all I was asking for is it's hard to have time to reflect when you have no time and you know you need to. And this event that we did and the seventh day opening, I think was very similar. I was fucking overjoyed when I saw you guys make the, on paper, the worst fucking decision possible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this, just to break it down, like this restaurant from the very beginning has been different than anywhere I've ever worked. And it's part of the reason I think I'm even doing what I do. I don't know why I do my job. I went to business school. I, I could have done other things, worked less, but I need to be working hard. Like that's just, I would say that's one of my qualities is I just work hard. You, and I know work very that's hard. how, you know, that's how Jude and Mark and Dave and everyone else here is. And a lot of us have made it to where we are in restaurants because they've just relied on people working hard and doing the firefighting and plugging in the holes. And like you survive by just working your ass off. Here it's, we're all working hard, but if we can put that energy towards constantly making things better, then we're going to be in a totally different league than everyone else. And that's, I think, what we're trying to do. I was, again, and the one thing that I loved most besides you guys quietly opening up Sundays without telling a fucking soul, and it was in, it's been slow, intentionally so, was then I saw this new schedule, and you put the best fucking front of the house and the best back of the house on Sundays, the expansion day. Yeah. Usually it's opposite. And we use that as not only are we got, got not going to show to the customers that you're just fucking getting the second squad, you're getting the best squad, but we're te- you guys are thoughtful enough to team the best players with the, the team that was like needed to learn. And I was like, thank God. This is the most thoughtful, long-term planning I've ever fucking seen from this restaurant. Yeah, it's been, I mean, the last couple of weeks, even though we opened up that seventh day, we kind of have been not pushing ourselves to the maximum. And even during the week on a Monday or Tuesday, if it's a little quieter, We'll switch people around in sections. We'll pair together a bus and a server that have never worked together before. We'll talk to staff about, you know what? Spend more time at the table. Go slower, even though we're constantly telling you to go faster. Like, try to pull the most value out of all of your interactions. Come and ask us questions. Let's sit down and talk about it. And I think there's been a lot more positivity, at least on my end from the front house staff, just feeling more like they are a part of the restaurant. And... It's strange for me to think this, but there's got to be some kind of wisdom after all these years of fucking shit up where (laughs) to be able to understand, to tell someone, you need to like slow down. This is not something that's going to be done in a month, right? This is a long-term goal. And it's so hard to make decisions that are short-term and long-term focused. 
Now I just need to figure out how to apply that to life. <laughs> um, yeah. And you've done a remarkable job. I can't imagine opening up, you know, Bill Simmons always says like on movies, like you can't imagine someone else being cast in this role. I can't imagine us opening up this restaurant without you. It'd just be very weird. I don't think it would have worked as well. Not nearly as well. And I think one of the things that we can continue talking on other pods, God willing, would be the fact that what we just spoke about, if you had to connect the dots, was one of the things that we're continuing to do here is stopping, just stop doing shit and go back to what we used to do at the line and be critical of each other. There's no hard feelings if I fucking rip apart your idea or my idea and communicate. And that's what you guys are doing way more now because it's so hard to stop when you have so much shit. It's important to stop. And I was, again, really proud to see you guys bake in times in the week just so you guys could air your grievances or fucking shoot the shit. And in fact, I think we're going to do that more often about menu development, so on and so forth. It's hard to get shit regimented. Well, when your day is already so full and you have like a to-do list that's two pages long to be like, hey, guys, let's all take an hour of our day and just sit down. It's like, I really could use that time for other things, but it cuts off that telephone game a lot because we don't all work the same days. But as managers and chefs, it's important that we all have the same information because I might put in, say, a maintenance request or call a plumber. I'm not actually going to be here when the plumber gets here. That person who deals with the plumber isn't here the next day when I'm back and I'm asking what happened with the plumber. Like, if we can just constantly be in communication, we're not going to be wasting time afterwards to figure out what information was actually important, what is the solution, and really just getting us on the same page and the same ideas at the line, just spending time together. Because then we're just, our brain wavelengths are more in tune. So it's, it's been fun. I don't know what we talked about yesterday during our meeting, but I was like, all right, well, there was an hour of my day and we're all laughing and, you know, we and got like, some ideas. And you know what? And like a couple services ago, was it a couple nights ago, I, I was aggravated because I was like, hey, Justine, you need to fucking throw your weight around more when you are unhappy with something. Yeah. I fester inside. Um, <laughs> Especially no. with like the, the chefs and the kitchen. Yeah. Well, that's unusual. I've never before been… I mean, I'll be the first person if I see something going out into the dining room that looks wrong. I'll be the first person to be like, send that back. Do not send that out. But not to like step into their territory and be like, hey guys, let's change this dish. Or, you know what? I don't really like this. Or, hey, hey Jude, hey Mark, why haven't you guys tried this? And I think that's what you are trying to push me to do a little more. And I think it's good for them. You know, it's the worst thing is when chefs just be chefs. Front house just is doing front house. Because then you start to disalign in terms of pushing forward. Because they have their own chain of emails and everything every day but I'm not a part of that. So I don't know what they're actually working on. I can't figure out the relevant questions to ask unless I know. But they, and they do, they all listen to you anyway. And, and I'm not trying to say that you need to abuse your power, but the fact of the matter is you're not in that bubble of fucking hovering over food and talking about food and it's so insular all day long. You can give an actual objective opinion on it mm -hmm. and shoot the fucking truth. Yeah. Well, when I taste food, it's hard for me not to. Uh, and I'm always happy to test food. I think personally, what was hard was I was trying to get everything figured out with my front house staff and then just the general restaurant things I have to do as a general manager that I wasn't 
thinking, well, let me also do those same things I'm doing with my front house staff with the back house staff. Like the other day, I just went, I hung out next to the Kakagori guy for like 20 minutes. And doing that is not only going to be more insightful for me and figuring out, okay, this is the temperature. This is where all the staff is at. Here are some changes we can make, but it also gives me good feedback to provide with my chefs. And then we can sit down and have a meaningful conversation about what we need to be doing. I think this has been fun. I, I know we can continue to talk. I, I don't want to take you any further from your shit you got to do today. But if you do see Christine, she loves sweets. Yeah, where are the cookies? She I loves cookies. I thought there were going to be cookies here today. Yeah, I'm sorry. She loves me. cookies. So uh, if you want to slip her cookies or anything that is an acidic, sour candy, yeah. she's a big fan of those. And coffee. Yeah. Coffee and cookies. That's like, I could have that every meal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Christine. It's really weird to be talking about these people in the podcast. We're going to get to Richard Hargrave. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell those unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you'll need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can also book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. I just use Hotel Tonight for the holidays. It's great, so I don't have to spend any time in my parents' basement. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by Stamps.com. The holidays are the busiest time of the year, especially at the post office. That's why you should use Stamps.com to save time during the hectic holiday season. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. post office right to your desktop. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Print postage any day, anytime. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time, never overpay again. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. I use Stamps.com all the time at work. It saves us a ton of time and money. And right now, you too can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Chang. That's Stamps.com, enter C-H-A-N-G. All right. Next, we're going to talk about Richard Hargrave, our beverage director in Sommelier, to talk about a beverage program. I have known Richard for many years. We opened up Australia. We have a restaurant in the Star Casino called Momofuku Seobo. And we opened that up in like 2011, 2012. And we had an epic run. It was one of the best opening teams of my life. And quickly I realized that besides the opening team of Kylie Javier Ashton, who's still the general manager there, and Sue Wong Ruiz, who's the general manager at Co. We have 
a lot of that team has done amazing things and opened up many restaurants. You have Clayton Wells, you have Chase Lavecki, and within our own organization, people have gone on to better, greener pastures within Momofuku. And the one person that's sort of been a constant at my side, because I don't want to work with anyone else, is Richard Hargrave. Hargrave, believe it or not, it has been, when I say believe it or not, I give him a hard time a lot of things because he's such a good sport about jokes, about giving jokes, about taking jokes. But he's British, but he wound up in Australia and he won a coveted Best Sommelier Award. So even though it's Australia, we're here in America. And one of the great compliments that we've gotten from a lot of publications is how terrific the beverage list is and the staff. And Richard, the beverage director sort of doesn't really encompass all the things that he does. What Richard does the best is service. He's a great service director too, but his core focus is beverage. And depending on how big the restaurant is, you could have a sommelier, you could have the head sommelier and the assistant sommeliers. But on top of that, that sommelier could also be the beverage director. And again, this is a perfect example of where title to me is relatively not meaningless, but doesn't do the job or the justice to describe the scope of how much Richard contributes to the restaurant. And he is a great, great psalm. He has an understanding of beverage as a whole with cocktails at large. And I learned about this when I opened up Sayoba with him in Australia. And again, I told myself, I'm never going to open a restaurant without him. And since we opened up Momofuku Sayoba, I have not opened a restaurant without Richard. Going all the way to the stuff we've opened up in New York, and in Las Vegas, and he's now based in LA and he's going to help us out on the West Coast operations. So one of the things that I learned, I was a slow learner when operating restaurants. When I first opened up Momofuku, we didn't even have any beverages other than bottle pulling spring and like a canned light beer. I think it was like Orion from uh, Korea. Slowly but surely, I realized why restaurants paid and really cultivated front of the house on the beverage end because beverages is like an instant sale and the margins, which I won't go into right now because that varies restaurant to restaurant, are way higher than the food. And not only are the margins higher, the labor is way more efficient because you have to slave away, work all day to make something delicious from a raw ingredient. And you could just pop open a very expensive bottle of wine. And other than the service and the knowledge, which is actually very hard, it's much easier to do. But while that might be the reality, there's actually nothing easy about beverage because you need to be so much more knowledgeable. You have to have grace. You have to have skill. You have to have technique. And you have to be able to figure out how to map out a game plan for each table. So I did not appreciate the complexities or the difficulties because I was never that much of a wine drinker when I was younger. I was just focused on food and cooking. So the more and more I learned and the more I realized that in order to be not just profitable, but to run a healthy restaurant because restaurant margins are notoriously small, having the ability to have a team and a beverage team that can sell wine. And it's not just upselling. That's not it. It's about finding people that want to pair stuff with your meal to enhance your dining experience. It's almost more important than the food, although I will never give into that. 
And my first understanding of how important the front of the house is to something that both Christine and Richard do was when we opened up Australia because it was a very high pressure filled restaurant, open kitchen. We had a very, and we still have an amazing restaurant, expensive kitchen was just rated number one recently. Paul Carmichael was the, is the chef with Kylie Javier Ashton. But when we opened it up, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know the food. We didn't know the ingredients. And we needed about three months to figure out how to make the food. And one day we'll, we'll sort of dissect what I just said there. But, you know, for a new restaurant, you need to find your sea legs. Sometimes it happens faster than others. But for us then, uh, we, we needed to make some mistakes. And in order to still deliver on a customer experience when we opened up, we relied so heavily on the front of the house. Both from Su Wong Ruiz, who's the general manager at Momofuku Co. now, but on the beverages as well. And Richard spearheaded one of the best beverage programs I've ever been a part of. So between the front of the house and the wine and the beverage program, because in Australia, we had a lot of people that were not drinking wine. So we needed to come up with like a juice program. So I can't believe after all these years, I'm going to give in. I'm going to say they're equally as important to what we do as a restaurant. And I began to see that when we opened up Australia because they really carried us till we figured out how to make our food better. And I think one of the best cases you can see of this if you get to New York is see the relationship between Will Gadara, who manages the front of the house, and uh, Daniel Hume, the chef, who manages the back of the house. And that was one of the first power tandems in a long time. Usually you see that it's traditional, but things sort of got lost along the way. And now... We've been notorious over the years at Momofuku to realize, to not to realize, we've, we've been synonymous with not having a really robust beverage program or even service or even the ambiance with backless stools. So our focus growing up has been to have better front of the house staff, training, knowledge. And Richard and Christine and all of our restaurants, quite frankly, not just them, have done a, a remarkable job of getting us to the next decade. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Richard Hargrave, beverage director slash sommelier of Major Domo. So I am with our, what is your title? I don't think anyone really knows. I'm, we're, we're, moment, I'm, people have titles, but we don't really use them too much. Yeah, at the moment it's just regional beverage director you're like beverage director som ish yeah. but not I'm anyway just a, I'm just, just a guy that gets moved around from just so you know richard hargrave is british we worked together on the opening team of momofuku seobo seven years ago seven years ago and richard is one of the he will not like me saying this one of the best sommeliers in the world in my opinion how different is it since you helped us open up seobo nishi vegas uh, vegas here i feel like la is kind of the summation of everything that we've done in the past both with ideas but also guests as well i think that sydney when we opened sydney it was like something completely new for us especially coming from new york and we were exposed to a clientele that was completely different a very laid back relaxed different way of thinking about food and drink then when we opened new york it was the complete opposite. I feel like New Yorkers, they know their shit, they know what they want, and they don't take any crap from anyone. And then Vegas was a completely different thing altogether. That was our first sort of big restaurant as such. And LA is like just something in the middle. It's like no one 
really has any prior history or rules or what they should or shouldn't do when they're eating, drinking. So it's a completely basically blank playbook. We can do what we want here. And it's, for me, it's been the most exciting one since Australia, I think. And how do you feel about it so far? Considering all the, I would say, palpable tension pre-opening? Yeah, it was, it was uh, definitely pre-opening was probably the most heightened stress levels that all of us have experienced in opening a restaurant. Just, I think just because of the sheer pressure and also just not wanting to make ourselves look stupid on the other side of the country. Like we, we had such high expectations of ourselves and just wanting to deliver a product that we knew we could do, but without, without we're basically trying to get the, the locals to like it as much as we think we liked it. Does that make sense? Right. And it was really stressful. And it was, it was the first time that I've ever, from scratch, written a beverage list for a restaurant with my name 100% attached to it before I've often collaborated with someone else or edited someone that did the first piece of work. This was the first time that I actually did something on my own. And actually, now I know how goddamn scared you must be every time you open a restaurant with a food menu because you're basically saying, this is what I've got. Please like it. I'm thrilled that people are recognizing the wine lists across uh, the country uh, in Australia, Toronto. Um, I think yeah, it's our beverage a long team, time to get there, huh? We had probably the worst beverage program in the country uh, <laughs> when we started. <laughs> arguably, remember. we did a. We were talking about this the other day. We did a pop up in Sydney one time when we did the sambar menu from I think it was 2008. And so we, we completely replicated the food menu, but we also replicated the drinks menu. And the drinks menu was, it was a can of OB beer, Hitachino Nest, I think one red, one white. Well, I take full responsibility for that. that um, yeah, it's something I've learned over the years, the importance of the beverage program, uh, unequivocally so. And it's yeah. been a long road for me. And what I realized is I don't know shit. So glad that we get to work with you and Jake and Lucas and everyone that's so talented on our team. What's been the biggest challenge for you? The biggest challenge for me, I had a little bit of it when we opened Vegas, is just the scale of the restaurant. This is not a small restaurant. My background's always been in fine dining, which for those that don't know, fine dining numbers are generally sort of 40 to 80 people a day. And you can basically manage or control everything yourself. You can keep an eye on every single table, every single guest, and you're pretty much aware of where everyone's at in their meal, how they're feeling about their meal, what they want. When we opened Vegas and we started doing three, 400 covers a night, and it's the same as here, it's allowing yourself to have trust in your team and letting some of it go, letting, not, letting yourself be comfortable with the fact that you might not be able to touch every table. There might be a few tables that don't see you for the entire duration of their meal. And it's having faith and trust in your team to deliver the same experience that you would when you're not there. One of the things that I think was most surprising for me uh, when we looked at items sold, and it fucking blew me away, still blows me away, were the bottles of fucking massive wine. It's crazy. I, I, I just love And what that. are some of these? So, so for an audience that has no idea, what would you consider a nice bottle of wine? I mean, like, that's a horrible question, but the, the kinds of wine that I would say an onophile or gourmand or someone that would want to buy that, would you be like, wow, that's well, awesome. Well, the thing that's just blown me away the most about the LA restaurant is just the sheer breadth of wines that we're selling. 
I said it when we first opened. I couldn't believe that we would have one table come in and, and order the most hipster natural wine for a hundred bucks a bottle, and then the table next to them will be ordering a Grand Cru Burgundy for a thousand bucks a bottle. Grand Cru Burgundy, gross. Well, yeah, so gross. For some. Um, <laughs> Tooth be told, I'm the worst kind of fucking wine snob. Can you tell everyone what I will, like? I'll drink the shittiest wine. Well, yeah. I mean, you're actually the easiest person in the world to serve. It's either shitty beer. Or, Shitty white wine. Or Chablis or Merceau. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to that point in your life where you just don't give a shit about anything else now. It's easy. <laughs> At least you know what you like. But I was, I was really shocked when we have these wine dinners and people buying. When I would see the orders, I was like, who are these people? Yeah, I think, I mean, you would know this better than I do. I mean, Momofuku historically has is, is always been known as an Asian restaurant. And... I think people come in here and just they don't put the two together that Asian food and wine is actually things that can go hand in hand. And we always seem to sort of just fall short on, on the wine side of things. And I feel like here, people are just, they're so much more open-minded and they're so, coming in here, like even just getting to this restaurant, it's in the middle of nowhere. They're, all their expectations are just completely blown away before they even step in. So they don't know what is right or wrong to order. And, and I feel like that's the case at all our restaurants. I think if yeah. our beverage programs are awesome and a pleasant surprise if you're really looking. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not trying to like pump up our beverage. Program. I'm simply saying like, hey, like we sell wine here that I'm really, like, I'm shocked. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just making sure that you're able to give people the best of whatever it is that they want. And in the past, I guess one of my failings was always I kind of, it was a little bit more ego-driven when I did wine list, and it was all about what I wanted to drink. And I feel like now as I've got older and more mature in my palate, I guess, it's more about just, I just want people to be happy. If people want to come in and drink a Grand Cru Burgundy, so be it. Going back to the pre-opening, right, right, and the stress levels of it all, what were one of the things that we would be arguing over if I was just being like, Hargrave, what the fuck? jeez. Oh, I mean, the first the one thing you made abundantly clear to me before we opened was, I remember I just when I showed you the first one, the first draft lists that I came up with, and you said, Hargreave, I don't care what's on the list. Your exact words were, just don't fuck it up. <laughs> I was like, okay, no pressure there. And I think one of the things that was most important to me was that we made sure that we didn't alienate anyone, okay? I think it was very important that People could come in and order something, an incredibly cheap bottle of wine as well, which in, in the high-end restaurants, they tend to isolate those people and make, you know, the base price of a, of a wine list, 60, 70 bucks. I mean, when I go out, I'm a cheapskate. I want to I drink a $30, $40 bottle of wine. So when we created the list, just so people, when they're like navigating, what are some of the pitfalls that you try to not do in our list? Well, I think one thing I focused on was making sure that Usually the people that want to spend, say, less than $50 a bottle of wine, they're going to get an afterthought from the sommelier or the beverage director. It's not something that they care about. And one thing I really wanted to do with this place was make sure that if someone's ordering a low-end bottle, it's still the best of what it is, and they're still going to be thrilled with that bottle. And I and myself and my SOM team are still going to be as, as excited about selling that bottle as if it was, if it was a $500 bottle of wine. One of the things that I recall that we were, I wouldn't say arguing over, I think there's like pushing 
each other. Yeah. Me more pushing you, putting challenges on you. The usual way. <laughs> was I was saying like you were playing hero ball. Is that a... No, you were trying to make... You were trying to do everything for everyone, particularly on the beverage program. Right. Especially when we're busy. And it's hard to like not do that, right? I can't yeah. recall specific instances. We had... Well, we had a sort of... A coming to when, when Marguerite was out. I don't know if you've spoken about... Marguerite, who's one of the linchpins of Momofuku, she was out here just before we opened. And we had this super ambitious cocktail program. It was like a three-page program. And it was, it was kind of everything to everyone. And we, we showed her this list and she said, Rich, what are you doing? Like, one, you're going to kill yourself even trying to do this. And two, it's just, you're losing your narrative here. Like, it's like, what are you trying to do? What is the focus of this? And in our heads, it was like, oh, just, it's like going into a candy store and having every candy available to you. It's kind of what we tried to do with the cocktail list. So that was a big fail. And so literally three days before we opened, we just, Lucas and I went back to my place and we just tore the list up and we sat there until literally six in the morning. We listened to a Pink Floyd record on repeat for about five hours until we just hammered down what the narrative of the program was going to be. And when we woke up two hours later, it was like, great, we actually got it. The list was one page, it was clear, it was defined and it had a, a narrative. But I recall there were a couple moments where, instances, where I remember being like, as a whole, one of the problems we had were we were not training people how to actually problem solve in specific instances, right? Whether you have a big wine table or whatever, like I was like, Hargrave, you can't do it all. Yeah, that's, and that's something that's taken me years to get my head around is it's easy for me to go to a table and show someone an experience that I want them to have. But the hardest thing is to teach the people that work underneath you to be able to think for themselves and think intuitively and think kind of like you want them to. So I think finally we actually got there with this restaurant where if I'm not in the restaurant, the people, I have three sommeliers and a great bar team working here. I feel like they're now able to think for themselves and react to tables like I would want them to. So let's backtrack because Isaac, the producer, knows nothing <laughs> or pretend, right? When you're making the wine list, explain in layman's terms. The, the narrative side. So, I mean, the cocktail program, when we moved out here, we wanted to make it the best of California. So we wanted to use the best spirits that were made here, the best produce that we could get here. And what we did in the end was just made it too big and there was too much of that. And so then we just focused it down. And now what we've done is we sort of flipped it a little bit and made the cocktail program. Basically, we've gone back to what the classics were and then taken, kind of like we've done with the food menu. It's like, it's familiar, but not familiar at the same time. So every drink that you order from the bar is a classically named cocktail, but it's not a classic recipe. It's, it's I hate using this word, but it's like a majordomo spin on, on whatever that would be, be it using rice instead of some other sweetening agent, in, um, constantly just changing that around. Um, and then with the wine program, it was just, we wanted to basically respect the classics. So the, the, the big name producers from Burgundy, Bordeaux, wherever it may be. But my theory was if people are going to drink that, if they're going to come in and order that sort of product, they're going to have to order something with age on it. It's not going to be current vintage stuff. It's stuff that we've actually taken the time to source. And then if they want to drink the best of the sort of the new wave young stuff, that's also available. And what's a new wave young stuff? 
So, I mean, there's, it's a bit of a big subject to get into right now, but it's, it's basically with wine, there was always this two camps, I want to say. There's the classics, um, the people that have been making wine the same way, and then there's the rule breakers. And the rule breakers have really only started to come around in the last sort of, 10, 15 years. Uh, it's kind of a movement against convention, kind of like punk rock with music. And they started like sort of basically questioning everything that was taught to them in school or by like established winemakers and basically just tearing up the rule book and just saying, well, why can't we do this? Why do we have to do this? And making these new wines that, are, that taste different, they look different. I find it so contradictory that who I am as a person, I should totally fucking embrace the new movement. I know, you should, more than anyone. But I, for the life of me, I respect it, but I don't love them for the... There are some wines that I do like. I know why you don't like it, though. Why? Because you're contrarian. And, <laughs> and as soon as, as, soon as like, a critical mass starts liking something, that makes you not like it and want to find what's... So you're just saying the I'm the fucking worst kind of snob. Thank Pretty you. Much, yeah. Thank you. Impossible to please. For the record, I think Richard Hargrave is one of the key figures in the James Murphy wine movement. <laughs> the James Murphy wine movement? Yeah. Is that All a thing? oxidized natural wines. Uh, you see, now you're causing problems by putting oxidized and natural. Yeah, because I wanted you exactly to get you angry <sighs> by conflating two completely wrong things to do. I did it. You've there. been there. Uh, I mean, it's an easy, there's an easy riposte to that is there's plenty of conventional wine that's oxidized as well. There's I know. And I'm saying that as a total hypocrite, knowing that we have massive... <laughs> Massive inventory of <laughs> yeah. natural. No, I love natural wines. Where I actually have a real problem are the, the not nice oxidized whites. Correct. To me, that's just not nice. I 100% agree. But you sell it all the fucking time. And you I love drinking to, it. I've got better at finding the good stuff now, though. I still like drinking it, but I don't like... No one likes drinking bad anything. No, half the wines... As I say, I say this a lot to Richard, and it's the best... It's not even a backhand compliment. I, I really don't understand a lot of the wines that Richard puts on. It's not something that's my cup of tea. I'm not going to say that he's a... It just, it isn't. But I would, I would not want to open up a restaurant without you. Simultaneously. <laughs> you just wish my palate would get better. No, your palate's great. I know nothing about fucking wine, ultimately, right? right. And it's just funny to me is like, what I do have is an undying trust in your ability to do this. And I think your skill set is way larger than just creating a menu. Right. And those that work with you certainly know that you have. So like, if this was basketball, you're like a, one of those players that has a fucking incredible PR rating where you're like, I don't fucking understand why whenever he's on the court, they win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, and that's like a testament. Like, I have a hard time quantifying what makes you so fucking great. All I know is this. Whenever you are here and whenever you're part from the culture from day one, good shit happens. Even though I don't drink the wines well, that you recommend to me. Well, I wish I could figure that out myself as well. And I, remember, I, I remember once when, when we were at Nishi and we had a, a, a critic in. And you were stressing out because there was a critic in. How well did that work out for us, that fucking Well, not restaurant? so well. Not so well. <laughs> but I remember you saying to me, because I actually served them, so I apologize for that. But you actually said afterwards, you're like, Hargreave, I don't know what you do. Like, I literally don't know what you do. You do nothing all service. But then I know that when <laughs> the most important person in the room comes in, it's going to be okay. Yeah. 
It's well, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's like you're almost like Robert Horry to me sometimes because, like, I don't know why, but when I need you to make the shot, you're going to fucking do it. Well, that's, that's good to know. I don't know who Robert Horry is. Exactly. <laughs> but as <laughs> a whole, like, in this, for, for anyone that's like, oh, he's being a jerk, like, this is me trying to compliment Hargrave in the best possible way. Is like, you're an invaluable asset to our team. I love having you. And I cherish the fact that we've gotten to know each other so well over the past seven plus years. And I make fun of you all the time in terms of how I don't like your wine list, but you know that I love them. And I can't imagine working or opening up anything without you. Yeah. And I will never compliment you ever again. That's it. It's on record now, though. I've got you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to the post-opening diaries of Major Domo with two of our key members of the front house staff, Christine and Richard. I love them so much. Stay tuned next week for the BOH, the back of the house, with our chefs there. 